0: welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast series. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen today. In this just our second episode, we are very excited to present an engaging interview with the world-renowned soprano Deborah Voigt. This interview was recorded as part of our Musical Chairs, Conversations on a Life in Music series, hosted by Paul Gruber, the Guild's Executive Director of Program Development in our Public Programming Department. In this interview, we'll hear insights into Miss Voigt's triumphs and struggles throughout her career, She will be talking about her recent book titled Call Me Debbie, True Confessions of a Down-to-Earth Diva, and we will also hear some brief performance clips which have been shortened for the purposes of this podcast. If you are in the New York City area and are interested in attending similar live events, you can find more information and schedules on our website at www.metguild.org. Now, without further delay, please enjoy today's episode, an interview with Deborah Voigt.
1: Thank you all, and thank you for coming and being our, our first guest in Musical Chairs this year.
2: And I just saw my picture on the wall. I'm so excited.
1: You are there.
2: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: um, so you wrote this book. I did. Um, and... Uh, it's an amazing book. I have read it twice. I, I read it when it came out. I reread it. Well, I'm a slow reader. Um, <laughs> um, it's a quick I, read. It's a quick <laughs> read. Um, well, it is kind of spellbinding, I must say, when you, when you get into it. Um, but uh, first question is, how, how did the book come about? Were you approached to do a book, or did you have the idea?
2: Initially, I was approached. Um, The idea of writing the book came up for the first time probably, oh, gosh, seven years ago, something like that, was fairly soon after I had been fired uh, for not fitting into that little dress. And um, yeah, you might have heard about that story. And uh, subsequently, um, had gastric bypass and dropped a lot of weight. And um, I think it might have been my publicist who said, you know, you really or at a point in your career where you have something to say about music, about being an opera singer, and I had had this uh, event which kind of reminds me uh, years and years and years ago I worked with Herbert Breslin as a publicist and Herbert was best known as being the manager of Luciano Pavarotti and he was at that time my publicist but it was so early in my career that there was nothing to publicize and he, but he said to me, he says, you know what we really need, Debbie, we need a scandal. And I never forgot that. And you know what? He was absolutely right, <laughs> uh, because uh, it takes a lot to capture the imagination of a public um, beyond the stage at the opera house. Oh my gosh! Now I'm really nervous. <laughs> pretend.
1: I'll pretend.
2: pretend. I'll pretend. Uh, in any event. Um, so the idea of, of writing this, this book came up, and I knew I couldn't write it alone. I'm not a journalist, and so we started to look into co-writers. And something in me started to say, it's not time. I knew that Brunhilde was on the horizon, um, and I knew I would have more to say musically once that mountain had <laughs> literally been climbed. But I think that I also knew that um, there were other issues uh, in my life that were going to manifest themselves, and it was just not the right time to write the book, and I, I put it aside.
1: Had you always planned to write about those issues? or No. Was the first idea that you do a, and then I sang, and then I sang, and then I
2: sang? No, actually, no. I, I intended to talk about those issues, to talk about my life. I didn't want to write a book... That was basically a review of XYZ role sung in ABC Opera House. You can find that. That's, that information is out there. I didn't want to talk about uh, my colleagues because I don't have any bad stories, except for a couple, um, to talk about with my colleagues. I've been very, very fortunate in that way. And I knew that there were things in my life that people could relate to aside from opera. it became very important to me to talk about that. I didn't know how to tell my story from the beginning and go to the end and and weave out the less attractive bits or the parts of myself that maybe made me a more compelling artist because I went through those things. And I just thought, let's wait until Brunhild is done and then maybe revisit it.
1: Uh, May I ask how many people have read the book? They quite a few have. Um, I'd, I'd like to start off by saying it's an amazingly candid book um, for anyone to write about herself, much less someone in this business, uh, because the, not just the opera business, but the classical music business is very conservative, and while there are movie stars and theater stars who talk about their deepest darkest secrets. Very few singers do. I remember when Marilyn Horn's memoirs came out. Um, there was a huge to-do because she mentioned a case of, of pubic lice. <laughs> <laughs> and you go way beyond pubic lice.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess I do, don't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I also thought it was interesting about. Um, we're going to go talk a little bit about childhood. Uh, because you talk about it a lot in the book. Um, and I get the sense of. Um, um, you gave me these pictures.
2: It's all. That's quite <laughs> a right. long time ago. Um, Did I? Yeah. Oh, I get the okay.
1: sense that uh, writing the book and some therapy has helped you understand your parents more. Isn't it?
2: That's absolutely true. Uh, when I look at the relationship, especially with my father, and. Um, he was very, first of all, they were very young when they had me. My father was uh, 18 when I was born, and my mom was 17. Uh, so they were babies, uh, trying to have babies. Um, my dad was a very driven man, and I think I got a lot of my ambition and, and determination from him. He, I'm sure, was a very frightened young man, having this wife and child suddenly. Um, and it was a household that was Full of a lot of fear, and not the sort of fear where we were, you know, locked in a closet and you know, not fed. It was a very subtle, underlying fear. And it was there from the very beginning. Um, and we walked on eggshells uh, so that Dad wouldn't be upset. Um, when I look at the relationship I have with my father now, it's really nothing short of miraculous. And I can see why the transformation has maybe happened on my half, because I've spent I don't know how many thousands of dollars in therapy. (laughs) But my father hasn't. And he has somehow come to a place where he is accepting and loving. It was hard for him to read this book and see how the environment that I was raised in affected the way that I grew up and some of the issues that I formed about myself and about self-esteem and, and things like that. But um, I also made the decision that I would not share any of this book with my parents or anyone uh, before I released it. Because I didn't want, I didn't want it to be influenced. It was my story, it is my story, it is my memories. And if I were to say to my mother, well, I'm going to talk about this. She wouldn't have liked it much, I'm sure. And, and I didn't want to have it be edited by anyone but myself. And so they didn't read it until it, it had come out. It was I had the hard copy, hard cover copy. It hadn't been released yet. And I mailed it to my parents, and it was like crickets chirping. I didn't hear anything. And so finally, I called my mother. And I said, Mom, hi, how are you? You know, chit-chat, 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 and nothing, nothing. And I, so I said, Mom, Mom, so you've read the book. I've read it from cover to cover twice in one day. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And she, the first thing she said was, she said, I want to tell you that I'm sorry that you felt the way that you did. Because I, I grew up feeling very much like I had to take care of my mom. I'm sure it had a lot to do with the fact that she was so young that she didn't know what she was doing. She was dealing with a man who was angry, who was not the most faithful of husbands. And I'm sure that my mother was full of fear, and I sensed that as children. We pick up things from the people that we're around. And I didn't want to go to school because I was afraid, you know, what, what, what would happen to mom? Mm. Uh, and that sort of thing. And she apologized for that, and which I thought would, took a lot for her to say. And then she said, I just wish that you had talked more about the happy times in your life. And I just said, well, Mom, you know, I, I think I said something stupid, like, well, I'm trying to sell books, so, you know, <laughs> no. I didn't say that, although I thought it. But, you know, I mean, what I wanted to say and couldn't was that, the happy things that happen in our life, of course, influence us. But it's those darker things that take place that we carry in us. Uh, at least that was my experience.
1: The, the two things that I, my reading is that the two things that affected you the most uh, from your parents were, they were Southern Baptists.
2: And, in Chicago, go and figure. Chicago,
1: And your father especially had a very strong belief that any singing that was not in the church was sinful.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, And you were a budding singer.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's true. They felt that uh, a gift such as the one I had was God-given, and I would agree with them. I don't have a problem talking about God. If you read my book, God is in my book. But yeah, it it was also an issue of pride. My parents had a big thing about pride, pride goeth before the fall and all of that. And that stayed with me for a long time. And I, if I was singing for the Lord in church, that was great. And I'm glad that I had that experience because that was where I learned that even as a little girl, I knew that when I sang, I got a response from an audience. I knew that. from you know, not much older than her. <laughs> and uh, that's a gift, that's a real gift. But it took a long time. And I think I talk about in the book, which I myself haven't read since probably last spring. Um, I thought I was home alone and I was sitting at the piano and I had some, some you know, God f- forsaken music like out of My Fair Lady on the, on the piano bench, and I'm singing, and I'm playing, I'm just whooping it up and whooping it up. And out of the corner of my eye, I see my father come up the stairs. And I froze. And I can, I can feel that today, that feeling that I had been caught doing something that I wasn't supposed to do. And yet, this was what I was supposed to do. Uh, and he, his words were, who do you think you are? Uh, and I ask myself that today. <laughs> um, so it took a long time for them to come to terms with my getting involved doing musicals, and they realized that I wasn't sent to hell the minute that I appeared in Mame. Um, yeah, that's some
1: great musical pictures. Oh,
2: that would be me as Seidel in Fiddler on the Roof.
1: Did you do a lot of research for that in the Jewish For Seidel? Yes.
2: Uh, I, no, I'm afraid nah. not, no. Yeah, no. There's a time in
1: high school. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then this is Music Man.
2: That is Music Man, yes. yeah. So the, by the time that came along, they were kind of okay with it, um, with my singing outside of the church environment. But it did take them a long time. There, well, it took me a long time when I became a professional opera singer. I was always aware when my parents were in the audience. There was always some sort of a disconnect. I couldn't really play that love scene the way I would really want to. I couldn't be as dramatic as I really wanted to be, or knew I should be, or I knew I had within me to be because my parents were there. And it took me a long time to get past that and to just not, you know, whatever, you know. I think, except when I did Zolome. That was a little tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Did they go? They went, and it was very funny because I was doing it in Chicago. And first of all, I never thought that I would ever do Zolome because When I weighed 335 pounds, my joke was always, well, I would have to do the dance of the 77 veils instead of the 7 veils. So um, those performances were supposed to have been a revival of an Ariadne that I had done maybe a season prior. They decided that it was not good timing to revive that production, so they called and said, would you do Zolome? And I about hit the floor because I just never, ever thought that I would do it. But why not? So, rehearsals come, you know, we get to the, is she or isn't she going to, whoo-hoo, and uh, I decided that I would wear a very anatomically correct body stocking, and, but, you know, it was obvious, so about a week before opening night, my mother calls me, and she says, you know, Debbie, I've been thinking, I'm not sure this is something a Christian girl would do, (laughs) I said, well, mom, she is in the Bible, so. <laughs> um, I, I said, look, mom, it's very tasteful. There's a lot of smoke, there's mirrors, there's, a, you know, it's that long. It'll be fine, it'll be fine. When it actually happened, that didn't bother them. What bothered them was my kissing the head. That really disturbed them.
1: <laughs> you also talk about at the same time that the fact that when you were 14, that God literally told you to use your talent.
2: Yeah.
1: What's yeah. your reaction to that part in the book? Because that's, that's something also that people don't talk
2: about. No, people don't talk about it. And I didn't talk about it for right. a long that. time until I was in college. But I remember it like it was yesterday. and. I remember the room, I remember the time of day, and I heard, felt, understood, you are meant to sing. I don't know how to explain that, except that in my mind that was God. Now I was a young woman who was open to God and open to spirituality, and so that was the voice that I accredited to. It was very early in the morning, there was no noise, nothing. And I heard it like it was yesterday. And I was so, as you say, we don't talk about these things. She, God talk to her, please. And I, I didn't speak about it again until I was probably 23, something like that. And I was now in school, at university, and had a teacher that I just adored. Uh, she was a good teacher, but she was a good woman. And she understood my brain. <laughs> and I, we were having a particularly difficult lesson, as is always the case for young singers. And I was crying, which if you read the book, you'll do find out that I do a lot of crying. And she said, you know, do you really want to do this? Do you, does, do you feel that this is you know, really what you're meant to do? And I told her this story and thought she's going to. And she hugged me. She said, I absolutely believe you. And he's absolutely right. And then I didn't speak about it again until I wrote the book.
1: And you mentioned the other thing that really fascinated me, that you mentioned while you were studying with this teacher, that you realized that you had not been terribly interested in opera before that.
2: Understatement. You were more
1: interested in musical theater. Yes. And pop music. Right. Karen Carpenter.
2: Karen Carpenter.
1: But one of the things that drew you to opera, besides this teacher, was the fact that you saw it as a way that heavy women could succeed in show business.
2: That's in true. In opera, That is true. I knew, despite my love of musical theater, and pop music, and country music, and a lot of different things, that my size was not going to work. This observation came about the same time that I was starting to enter competitions. The teachers that I had from the first teacher on were classically oriented. So I had always been classically trained. So suddenly there was a competition to, you know, win a little bit of money and, and, and I, and it was an operatic competition and I decided to take that opportunity. And one thing led to another and led to another and led to another and Suddenly I was on the track to being an opera singer who how many years later would be fired for being too heavy, so lots of irony there. <laughs> you know, that was a long time ago, too. Um, you could be a very heavy woman and still have yeah, a career in the opera, which you can too, yes. You,
3: yeah, well, th- I, I, I think it. things were just yeah,
2: just too. beginning to, to change in terms of the discussion about, right. about whether someone is viable as a particular character or as, as a love interest and, you know, and it... I don't know. Now, if I were coming out of the gate at 335 pounds, I'd like to believe that I would, would still be recognized and still have a fantastic talent uh, career, but uh, who knows?
1: When you are, are teaching, doing master classes, and you run into a 335-year-old singer,
2: well, they're what not
1: you, usually that old, but they might
2: I'm be sorry. that heavy. They <laughs> are? <laughs> <laughs> I asked them about the fountain of
1: youth. <laughs> Amelia Martin, um, 335-pound singer. What, right.
2: What do you say?
1: Do you say anything?
2: Uh, not publicly. Yeah. Um, although I, I, was just, I just did a master class in Boston a couple nights ago, and a very, very heavy guy got up, and he says that he's held in tenor and, you know, does it matter, blah, 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 blah. You know, I think that if someone really has the goods... You know, if they're really a phenomenal voice, they're going to rise to the top no matter what. It's the in-between folks that are going to struggle. Right. And opera being as challenged as it is today, I mean, didn't Gotham Chamber Opera, just, it just closed down. Okay. I mean, it's just, there are going to be fewer opportunities. And as a result of that, you have to be as competitive as possible. That's just the way it goes. Mm-hmm. If that 330-pound singer sings in a class and they have a phenomenal instrument, I would speak to them privately and I would say, you know, you you need to do something about this. One way or another, you have to try and address it because if for no other reason than it is going to come up, it's going to come up over and over and over and over again. You will never not hear about it. You may have a career, but there will still be talk.
1: Well, and as you discovered, it comes up in other ways in terms of your body in terms of, as you age, being yeah. able to carry yourself. Absolutely.
2: And well, and also, have, I just got to the point, I wanted to have, I wanted to have a better life. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, I'm an opera singer, but I wanted to be able to, you know, fit in a chair in an airplane and not worry about it. Uh, I wanted to not worry that I would sit on some chair and it would give out, or that I would, you know, lose my breath walking up. A I just wanted, I wanted to get over that, get past that. I didn't want to be identified as that anymore. And and you know, there were roles that I wanted to sing that, you know, I, I don't think that I would have been Brunhilde running on the machine if I had been three hundred and something pounds. I just don't I don't believe that would have happened. Although they did reinforce the stage, so <laughs> <laughs>
1: But they but they did it for the machine, not uh, for you. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, the machine. By the way, the biggest diva we've ever met, she was overweight. She was temperamental, she was perhaps overpaid. (laughs) Noisy. Noisy.
1: (laughs) Um, We'll move along to your, you were a winner in the 1985 uh, National Council Auditions. That
2: would be my first time on the Met stage, right there. Right, a lot
1: of people's first time on the Met stage. And even then, you felt that your weight was keeping you back from the Young Artists Program. Yeah. Um, so you went to Marilla yeah. in San Francisco. Risa
2: Stevens told me. I, I was, yeah.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah, she,
2: yeah, I had, yeah she scared me. But, uh, yeah, well, she... She, did tell
1: you, she told you privately, I assume.
2: Yeah, you know, no, she did didn't say. put a banner hanging in yeah. front of the mat. no. <laughs>
1: right.
2: No, but she, she did tell me privately. And, and, and also, uh, Larry Stair, who was the head of the program at that time, mm-hmm. did say to me, well, don't accept another program without talking to me first. And then I went out to San Francisco, won their competition, and they asked me on the spot to be in their young artist program. And I thought, okay, this team is saying maybe, and these people are saying yes right now. Guess where I'm going. Yeah, no, I can <laughs> and, I, and, and it really, for me, was the best, the best thing. The
1: yeah. best. Oh. We didn't talk about eating, because that was another issue in your family. That, that um, you know, just like being prideful, and singing, the eating issues were definitely something that affected you, um, that both parents had.
2: Right. Well, my dad was what I call the food marshal. Um, So he was always watching everything that went into my mouth and into my mother's mouth. And yet, we all had to be members of the Clean Play Club at the end of dinner, so I never quite, quite got that. But, you know, the thing of it is, I'm sure that my father's intentions were good. Although, when I look back at pictures, I was just with my mother a couple of weeks ago, and we were looking through pictures of ourselves, and my mother was a voluptuous, beautiful woman. I was a voluptuous teenager. I had breasts and thighs and hips, and I was normal, but voluptuous. Mm -hmm. And I think my father interpreted that as the onset of, of a weight problem. And if someone tells you enough throughout your life that you are this and you are that, and you listen to it enough, you start to believe it.
1: You had success in Boston, a surprise success in Boston, as Ariadne. And then um, you tell a wonderful story. Actually, it's a little disturbing, but I liked it. In 1991, uh, you had your first contract with the Met for, to do uh, Ballo <gasps> oh. in the Parks. Oh. Um, and you were, uh, uh, you had one performance. You were covering for someone else. Can tell that story, or is wa-
2: should I tell the name? Or it doesn't matter. Well, I was I was covering Leona Mitchell, and the contracts read something like, you know, she gets eleven sings, and I do eleven covers, and I get one show. And they did assign dates, for so I knew that this night was going to be my Met debut in some park in New Jersey. But we had a lot of rain that season. So there were rain dates and there were cancellations and this. Anyway, so the day arrives that it's my Met debut day and they send me they send the car to pick me up. And we drive out and the dressing rooms were, you know, trailers because there's no dressing rooms in these amphitheaters. And I walk up to the trailer and I hear someone singing Amelia's music. And it's Leona. And she's in there warming up, and it's the night that I'm supposed to sing. And it was really awkward. And I thought, well, what do I do? So I went and I found Jonathan Friend. And I said, Mr. Friend, um, am I singing tonight? What do you mean? Are you singing tonight? Of course you're singing tonight. I said, well, Miss Mitchell's in there, and she thinks she's singing tonight because she's in there warming up. (laughs) And I think he threw the task off onto somebody else. He didn't want to deal with either. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anne Coughlin. <laughs> yeah, so poor Anne had to go in and tell Leona. And, you know, I think Leona just thought because of the rain dates and the...
1: It got confusing. It got
2: confusing, yeah. yeah and she yeah, thought that it was yeah, going to be yeah. her performance. And it was, it was a little awkward. It you, was a lot awkward, actually. I yeah. was warming up under the trees at, like, 10 to 8, oh. thinking, you know, when am I going to put my costume on or my dress?
1: It's the same role as your Met stage uh, debut, and we have some videos to watch tonight. And the first one is um, a video of Balo, but not the entire opera. Uh, in 1994...
2: Thank God, that a long night. <laughs> right.
1: No, not from the entire opera. In 1994, <laughs> you sang the act two duet with Luciano Pavarotti, which you had done a number of times on stage, I think before this and certainly after it. Um, and at a, on a television program, Called Pavarotti Plus, it's really quite a performance. So here is Deborah Voigt with Luciano Pavarotti from uh, what is now David Geffen Hall. I almost
4: pick need one of money.
2: He used to do a lot of funny little things. Yeah,
1: right. (laughs) But he stayed on stage for this one. Well, yes. He
2: he had a habit of leaving in the middle of that duet. When I would be singing my bits, first time it happened in London. And I'm, and I suddenly feel very alone. (laughs) (laughs) So I look this way, no Luciano, (laughs) no Luciano. And I look and he's in the wings getting a drink of water. And in fairness, he came back on, but first, onto the stage, as if to say, well, the conspirators aren't there. I looked in the wings, and they're not there. But he, he did it every he time. He justified it. Yeah. Smart smart man.
1: We have uh, you on, shown here in a new production of Electra with Hildegard Behrens that you did um, pretty close to your, your Met debut yeah, and with Leonie Risnik. Um, and you mentioned the fact that both of them were very helpful to you.
2: They were. They were They were very helpful in their own ways, I and mean, they were very, very, very different ladies. Yeah. I, of course, was nervous because Leone had been the reigning chrysotomous at the Met for many years, and, and I hadn't met her before, so I didn't know what to expect, and I was so pleasantly surprised to find out that she was just such a nice lady. She was just one of the girls, mm-hmm. and she was very encouraging and never, you know, tried to put her stamp on anything or say, hey, kid, you know, this is how I did it, and just as, as gracious as she, as she could be. And Hildegard was, she could be cool. You know, she had a, a cooler sort of demeanor. But I learned a lot watching her in rehearsals because she was so concentrated, and, and I'm a, I've, I've always been terrible in rehearsals, just terrible. I, I have a hard time focusing until there's an audience in front of me. And we were rehearsing this scene, in fact, and I went to touch her and she said, no, don't touch me. She said, I think it's, it's lonelier. The feeling of loneliness in, in crusados will be greater if you don't touch me. Or she was being the diva and didn't want to be touched. I don't know. But no, she wasn't that kind of lady at all. Yeah. But I learned, I learned a lot watching her. She just gave herself to the role, whatever role it was. Just chewed up the stage and spit it out. Yeah. And yeah. that was, you know, to be that early in my career and be on stage with ladies like that was really quite a lesson.
1: Uh, we have some other highlights from the earlier days of your Met career. This is Ariadne. Lohengrin, Robert <laughs> Wilson Lohengrin, which I know you had mixed feelings about.
2: What makes you say that?
1: <laughs> because, because you make fun of it a lot whenever we talk about
2: it. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know I but I
1: know I've it. told you that I thought that was one of the extraordinary productions.
2: I wish that I had had the chance to see it from the house because I believe yeah. that you're, you're probably correct. And as much fun as I make of it, I have to say that the work that I had done with Robert Wilson on this, first time I met him, I was understudying Jesse Norman in Alceste in Chicago. And he, at that time, budgets being, you know, unquestionable, the Opera House paid the covers to come to Chicago so that he could rehearse his staging on us for six weeks before the principals ever showed up. And the first day of rehearsal, he had all of us line up on one side of the room, and he gave us exactly like a minute and 30 seconds to get to the other side. And we had to time it perfectly. And I think we spent three hours just trying to learn the language that he used to, to, in his productions. Mm-hmm. But at one point, he had me on my stomach, on the ground, with my arms out like this. And he says to me, do you think Jessie will do that? <laughs> I didn't know her yet. But I said, she, yeah, I'm sure she'll be game. No, no. <laughs> she, uh, she didn't do it. Well, but anyway, uh, the thing that was remarkable and is remarkable about his work is that he strips you of, of your natural means of expression. I'm a singer who has always used my body a lot when I move or certain gestures that, you know, whatever, that we might feel comfortable, and he takes that all away and gives you a whole another set of... Movement. And, and the, the beauty of it is that you are then forced to communicate using your voice. It all comes out in the text and the colors of, that we chose. And it was, a, it was a great musical cast, and Jimmy was conducting, and it was. This is Ben Heppner, by the way. Yes.
1: Looking not much like him. Not looking or, like
2: Ben Heppner. Yeah, I look like yeah. I've been startled very uh-huh. badly there.
1: You're wondering if that's Ben Heppner. But.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but. what was funny about that, too, is that he had never worked with Bob Wilson. Yeah. And so we show up for the first day of rehearsal, I don't know, we're in the first week, and I'm upstage of of Ben and he Bob Wilson says to him, Now I want you to look in the distance and see Elsa in the distance. And Ben says, But she's standing right behind me. (laughs) And I thought, I'm just gonna sit down because this is gonna be a long long conversation. (laughs) I'm not sure Ben ever really bought into it, but but it was a beautiful.
1: But I remember you gliding across a platform at one point. And you looked as if you had wheels, you know, it was perfectly well, smooth. Well, that's,
2: that and was what it It might have been one about. of those
1: minute and 30 seconds
2: glides. It was he a lot of practice. But,
1: but, but you knew how to do that.
2: Ben got to ride in on a swan, do you remember that?
1: Yes, uh, he's supposed to.
2: <laughs> well, but it didn't work one night, so <laughs> he had to be there, it was funny. Uh,
1: we're going to go back to Ariadne for the second video. I mean, we're not going to go into the little black dress thing too much, because everybody knows that story. And old, it gets all old news. But I, you know, I want people to think about it a little bit, the fact that you had a contract at another theater to sing this role, and the contract was then pulled away because of a costume. Um, This is the Met production um, from 2003, and uh, with James Levine conducting the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. I won't say anything about what I think of when I watch this, but... But take a look at this. Do you watch that often?
2: No. <laughs> no, but I'm always sort of stunned when I do. I mean, one of the things
1: I think about is what does it feel like to be able to do something that just about no one else in the world can do at that given time?
2: Well, I think that's, you know, what I feel when I watch that. I couldn't do that right now. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, that's where I was in, in that moment, and mm-hmm. it's, it's... I listen to that, and I think, "Who is that person? She <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, I've been so very, 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 very lucky, and very blessed and, and I worked really hard. And you did work hard.: really hard.
1: We have a few other production shots. This was a Frau production, which I th- is still holds up. yeah they brought it back a couple of years right. ago, and you know you did the premiere of it, Elizabeth and Tom oh. Um and then you went through this major change, partly because of the situation with Covent Garden, but not entirely.
2: No, no, no. And, and, you know, because of the timing of it all, you know, people often say, well, she did it because of that. The reality is that um, I had been thinking about gastric bypass for a long, long time. I had tried every diet known to man, and none of it had worked for any significant length of, length of time, or at least You know, when you're that heavy, you drop 20 pounds, that's a lot of weight to a normal person. But when you're that size and you've got 120, I couldn't stay with it long enough to to feel enough result, to feel happy with where I was. My joints were starting to hurt. And um, so it really didn't have anything to do with the Royal Opera House except that because they canceled the contract, I suddenly had six weeks off. And if you want to get technical, they paid for it too because they had to pay out the contract. So, um, I actually I did go back and do that production.
1: Right. Yeah, that with was a little black
2: dress. It wasn't so little, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: talk about having to reconnect with your body after the surgery to be able to sing again.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, because it happened so fast, every 20 pounds or so, I would feel like I was disconnected, that I couldn't get my support under me i couldn't get my body under me when i was that weight it was easy to sing because i would take a big breath and all of that poundage would automatically engage every muscle needed to sing and the sound just goes boing so afterwards you have to readjust and it took it took longer than i anticipated it would take
1: was that frustrating
2: oh yes <laughs> yeah, it was very frustrating, it was very frustrating. I mean, I think when you, any sing, I was a well-known singer and when anybody, you know, is in the public eye, they're going to be scrutinized and any variation in sound or, or, or delivery or whatever is going to be talked about over and over and over again.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I had this done at a time in my life where we, women singers, have to deal with uh, hormonal changes in our bodies and, you know, a lot goes on. If you're, you know, now, if you have a singer who has a 10-year career now, that's practically legendary.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I, I've been singing for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, a voice is going to change and uh, you're going to notice it if it's, if it's a, a face that you see over and over again in lots of different roles in mm-hmm. the same house or, and it's part of the beauty. Of having a long career because then you do get to see what an artist is and who an artist is and how they're going to develop and change throughout the course of of their career. But yeah, it can be frustrating. You know, I get a lot of, uh, well, her voice is more silver than gold now. That may be true um, because it's a different resonating chamber than it used to be.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: It could also be more silver because in order to sing Brunhilde, guess what? You need more silver than gold in your voice. It could be a natural progression of a voice as it matures. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I wanted to have a little more fun in my life.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you did broaden your repertory um, post-surgery, I think, partly to, to take advantage of a greater freedom that you've had, a physical freedom. So you're doing Tosca here, right. and you're doing well, balo but a different Malo. Yeah. And Isolde, again with Ben Heppner, and The The Ring with with Bryn. You talk in your book about something that I learned a lot about from reading it, which is the concept of cross-addiction. Can you tell everybody what cross-addiction is?
2: Well, uh, cross-addiction is uh, when you are using one particular thing to anesthetize yourself to escape from whatever you're trying to escape from. Uh, In my case, it was food. And I ate and ate and ate and ate, whether I was happy, whether I was sad, to celebrate, to whatever. Okay, so, I have the gastric bypass surgery. And I had always had an occasional drink. And suddenly, I found that I was drinking more and more and more and more. And over the course of many years, I learned that women in particular who have gastric bypass can cross-addict, meaning that the thing that was calming them, making their their lives feel tolerable, is no longer there, but they've not fixed the emotional reasons that it was there to begin with. And so that has to be replaced with something else. Mm -hmm. And in my case it was alcohol, and in a lot of women it's alcohol. Some of it has to do with the physical aspects of having bypass surgery and the way that alcohol affects our bodies post-surgery. The fact that I fell in love with a raging alcoholic probably didn't help. Mm. (laughs) Um, But that was the reason that I chose not to write the book in the (laughs) first place. Because that subject was starting to rear its head and I had a feeling That I I knew that it was something I was going to have to deal with. And writing a book at that time when this thing was getting bigger and bigger, I just, I couldn't do it. And that's why I put the book aside at that time.
1: So you'd never been warned about this being?
2: Never had been warned, no. And I'm not even sure. No, and I'm not sure that it's, it's something that at the time that I had the surgery done was even really necessarily known. This is not, you know, I learned about it on an Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, probably five years ago, and then started looking into it and found that it is in fact the case. And also, prior to having this surgery, you are supposed to go through a series of meetings, therapeutic meetings, I'm sure, to discuss these very issues. And I, being opera star Deborah Voigt, was fast-tracked through. Uh, So I didn't have those. And I don't know that it would have made any difference. I'd had plenty of therapy trying to figure out why I was so fat. You know, so I'm not sure that that would have made any difference.
1: Except maybe an awareness.
2: Maybe in an awareness. Maybe in an awareness.
1: you were drinking more, yeah. this, why this might be.
2: Yeah. But you know, the funny thing about alcoholism is that you can have all the awareness in the world. Yeah. And until you make the decision that your life is unmanageable and that you have to, you know, surrender your will and all the things that we talk about in the rooms, as we say it won't go away.
1: Yeah. And you made several attempts to stop drinking I did. before you realized what a lot of alcoholics realize that AA is what works,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I tried everything. I tried all the things that, that, that we try, you know, I tried controlled drinking, I, I tried only on Saturdays, I you know, all that stuff. And it just it just didn't work for me. I'm not that kind of, of drinker. I'm not someone who does it because she likes the taste of alcohol. I was doing it because I didn't want to be present and I can't tell you why because why would that girl who you just saw singing all that, why would she not want to be present? What's, you know, so bad about, but there's something in people that have addictions that makes them want to escape themselves for whatever reason.
1: And This was a time when you were on top of the world Professionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you ever think about what would people think if they knew? That would,
2: well, you know, not really because anybody... I have been around a lot of singers who drink a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe they can control it. Maybe they, you yeah. know. Um, no, I didn't. It wasn't really until I got to the end and, and realized that uh, my life was falling apart. Yeah. You know, my, my day-to-day life you know, let alone my career. My career was kind of on autopilot at some point, you know? And I am someone who has never handled breakups very well. If you read my book, you'll find that out as well. And that was kind of my way of sort of dealing with that too.
1: And much of the time, you seem to be a functioning alcoholic.
2: Yes. You got to performances most of the time.
1: You got to rehearsals most of the time. Yes. So that it wasn't. Yeah, somehow your I managed
2: to separate that. I didn't drink on the day of a performance, but at the same time, you know, if you drink a whole lot the night before, you know how much of it is is out of your system. And and there did there did come a time when uh, I was doing uh, my first Cheniers uh, in in Barcelona, and it was it was really getting out of control, and you know I, I had to have my I had to face it. It had to be dealt with, and it is every day. Every day you have to deal with it. Yeah. It never goes away.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you did deal with it. But let's talk a little bit about the ring, because that was one of, the, one of the real challenges you took on uh, after and during all of this was to take on these really three roles at the Met,
2: yeah, let's try it out at the Met in a in a new new production. Nobody'll notice.
1: Did you ever worry about that that you were doing these roles? Oh yeah, under yeah. the eyes. I of knew everyone I was. I knew world. it
2: was it, it was a crazy crazy thing to do. But yeah. the same thing had happened when I was offered my first Isolde. Um, it was a new production. It was in Vienna. It was with Tom Moser, who I adore. Christian Tielemann was conducting and. You know, those opportunities don't come along every day, so it, Isolde was coming into my life a little sooner than I had anticipated, but you have to go with the opportunity, and this was an opportunity. I mean, good, bad, or indifferent, it was um, not gonna go unnoticed.
1: We're gonna play um, a scene from the last act of Valkyrie um, with Bryn Tervo, uh, your final confrontation with your father which I find very moving.
5: hat dir deine Schuld Deinem Befehl wehrte ich aus Befall ich dir für den Walsum zu fechten So hießest du mich aus Herrscher der Wahl Doch meine Reisung nahm ich wieder zurück Aus Früge Da hier im Sinn du nicht wütest, warst du selber der Feind. Dass du mich verstanden, wenn ich und straf der den erwissenden Trotz. Doch feig, Und dumm, dachtest du mich, so hätt ich Verrat nicht zu rächen, zu gering wärst du meinem
4: Grimm.
1: (lacht) So I haven't heard any really good Robert Lapage stories lately. Could you tell us? <laughs> <about
2: them? laughs> I don't really have any good Robert Lapage stories. He, I.
1: What about the machine?
2: Oh well, the machine. It was difficult. There's no, there's no getting around it. I, I, I fell on her the first night out, but it was, it was a miraculous undertaking mm-hmm. for the house. No theater has done anything that technically complicated mm-hmm. ever. And I thought it was beautiful. Um, I did go and see the per- the performances that I wasn't singing in, so so that I could see and experience it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It was very difficult because you can't see anything on it. You don't when you're on it. You don't see the images. So the it, projections. it's a, the projections. Yeah. So it was a little bit a little hard to sort of play in that in that sense. And it was it was scary to step on because it, 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 could, it would move a little bit, just, just a little bit of a bouncing. But the worst night was in a Siegfried and the whole thing tips up and then one of the stagehands takes my hand and we run to the center and I have to climb up a ladder with other stagehands and then they lay me down, so I'm laying upside down basically. So, and I was, every night I was scared to death and I'm holding, holding hands with the stagehand for dear life. And we, the music is going and it's going, it's going, it's going, and the thing's not moving. And it got into a certain position, it kind of looked like a cat being scared, it was sort of like that. And now the music that I should be in place for has come and gone. And I'm thinking, what are we going to do? What, what? And, and my reaction is to cry because that's what I do. <laughs> so I start crying and I said, what are we going to do? What are we doing? What are we, the music's gone by. Don't, don't worry. Don't, it's, it's OK. It's OK. Don't worry. Don't worry. And another stagehand came running up to me and said, here's your shield and here's your spear. Go out on the apron and do the best you can, the apron being the flat place that we lived to be on so that we wouldn't have to be on the machine. So I went you know, tiptoeing out in the dark, uh, trying to pretend I'm sleepwalking because I'm supposed to be asleep, and laid down. And Jay Hunter Morris, bless his heart, came over and he was rubbing my hair. He said, don't worry, honey, it's going to be just fine. It's going to be just fine. <laughs> so after the performance, I mean, my heart was like, you know, pounding out of my chest all night. And we get done with the performance and I'm talking to one of the stage managers and and he said, well, that's, that's, you, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. I said, what do you mean what we were supposed to He says, well, that's always been the instruction that has been given to the singers. When there's a mishap with the machine, you have to go around to the apron because they can't start it over. She's, everything is timed. So we would have gone into like two hours of overtime if we'd run back and gone through all the, the cues. I said, well, when did you announce this? <laughs> oh, well, at the Rheingold rehearsal. I said, really? I said, guess who's not in (laughs) Rheingold? So maybe you should put a note in the book that when you do this next time that you tell, I guess it's Christine Gerke's doing it. You tell Miss Gerke, if anything goes wrong, run around to the front.
1: I was there that night. Were you? And Yeah. And, um, you, you know, the audience knew something was wrong because in the middle of all this beautiful music, you hear, bang! So you knew something fell and I'd already been at performances where people fell. You fell once, one of the Valkyries had a terrible
2: fall. Yeah she had a bad fall.
1: And um, then I saw you coming around, the two of you coming around on the apron and it was really entertaining because I knew, (laughs) okay this was not the way it's supposed to be, this was not the way it was staged, but they're going to have to improvise and let me see how they're going to improvise. And I, I, it, I'm sure it really kept you on your toes.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Nothing like a failed piece of stage <laughs> yeah. machinery yeah. to uh, show what you're made of. Yeah.
1: We have one more clip. Um, I was interested watching you in in the posturing period too continue to stretch yourself with two roles in particular. One was Marie and Votsak, hmm. which we don't have anything to show. It wasn't right. It wasn't broadcast. Broadcast. But the other was Minnie in Funchula del West, um, which uh, I thought was a real departure for you. And again, I'm going to wait before, I'm going to wait for us to see this before I say anything about what I think happened. Um, But we're going to watch the, um, y'all ready? (laughs) We're going to watch the end of the poker scene in the second act. Um, I don't know if it needs any setup. But you are playing a game of poker.
2: By the way, this Christian girl didn't know how to play poker when she took on Minnie.
1: (laughs) But you're playing a game of poker with the villain um, Jack Rance over the body, literally, of a wounded uh, Dick Johnson who you are in love with. And um, if you win, you get to keep the body. (laughs) And he's not dead. Um, and if you lose, then then Jack gets to have his way with you and kill, and kill.
2: I think doesn't he? No, no, just no, get me. He
1: just wants you.
2: <laughs> well then.
1: <laughs> um, so here is the the last section of the poker scene.
5: Io penso solamente che t'avrò fra le mie braccia.
1: That's um, Giordani, Giordani, Marcello Mar- Giordani. Marcello he didn't do much in that scene, but he was very good in the rest of it.
2: Such a great part. Oh, she's just so full, so rich.
1: You seem to, to me to have in both this and as Marie, a freedom that I hadn't seen before in it, on stage. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Well, it's the, you know, irony of life, <laughs> we get better. Um, as performers, we, at some point, you lose some of the fear of just turning yourself over into the moment. I mean, that, that was a moment, you know, it was like, I was in that moment. And it's the one thing I try to tell young singers, you know, oh, what, what advice would you give us, you know? And I, I always think, if I could go back and do it all over again, that would be the thing that I would want to remember. You know, what can I do right now? What is this character thinking right now? Not, you know, if I started out singing Tristan and Isolde, listening to the prelude and worrying about what the last note of the Liebestote was going to be like, I'd make myself insane. But the happiest times and the most fulfilling times that I've had on stage are when I am really present. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Minnie lends herself to that, especially the second act. And so does Marie. And interestingly enough with Marie, when I, everyone kept saying, well, you're gonna be a great Marie. It's gonna be wonderful. And I I just, when I looked at it on paper, I thought, I don't get this. I don't, but the more I delved into her and thought about, you know, do we, we don't even know that that child is thought sex. And when I looked at it from that angle and from, it just it just made the the doing that much richer. And those things come with time, you know, Um, it's really hard for young singers just to, first of all, to make a good sound, right. okay, then put in a foreign language, then put in a character, then put in a stage director, then, I mean, it's a very hard thing to do and it takes time and, and life and, you know, the fearlessness to just say, I'm just gonna do it, I'm just gonna do it.
1: Well, I would assume that most of the energy for a young singer or maybe just a singer in opera is to work, do it technically. Right. You know, everybody says, oh, I have, I, I have a great technique, so I can just do it. But I wonder if that really, if it really works that way.
2: Well, it has to begin that way. Yeah. You know, they have to have, have to have good techniques. But it's that extra layer of, of thinking and brain space to then convey the character that makes it difficult. I think, you know, a lot of young singers get a bad rap that, you know, they're not great actors. Well, give them a few years. You know, give them, if they have great voices, let's see what they can do. Let's... You know, mm-hmm. give them some time to mature.
1: You are engaged in a number of different activities right now. You still are doing Voigt lessons, mm-hmm. which was a project you started a few years ago with mm-hmm. Terence McNally. Right. Was that superseded by the book? Yes. Or is that...
2: Yes. Yeah, it, it started uh, with a conversation between Francesca Zambello and I about recital formats and how difficult it is to program recitals. And she said, I think you should do a one-woman show. I thought, well, okay. She said, I think we need to get someone to write write it. Okay. She said, how about Terrence McNally? And I thought, Terrence McNally, who wrote about Maria Collis, is not going to want to write. And he said he would. And I had been keeping a, a song list of just, just random songs, one of which was a Carpenter song. Another one is a spiritual called In the Palm of His Hand. One is Swagnung. Anyway, I don't know how many, 17 songs, I think. And Terrence was able to write my story, all of it, in 75 minutes, and weave these songs in. And um, it's an interesting piece, and I'm, I'm very proud of it, actually.
1: You just did it again recently.
2: I just did it in Provincetown right, recently. Right. Next time will be in uh, February in Palm Beach. Right.
1: And you just did, in our boardroom, was it a costume fitting or a costume...
2: <laughs> was it, it was a design discussion. A design discussion. <laughs> a design discussion.
1: <laughs> For something that's happening very soon.
2: <laughs> yeah, very soon. Like I'll be going <laughs> like home. And memori- I'll be mem- memorizing words in the car mm-hmm. on the way home tonight. Yes.
1: And this is Pirates of Penzance. Pirates
2: of Penzance.
1: And You're uh, playing Ruth.
2: I'm playing Ruth. Uh,
1: with what is now called Master Voices, they used to be Collegiate Chorale, um, and you'll be at City Center.
2: Doing City this. Center. Two performances.
1: Good. Uh, you're it's also- selling
2: very well, so if you want to go, you really should get your ticket.
1: And you're also doing HD hosting.
2: I am. From time to time. Yes. Yes.
1: Which you seem to like a lot.
2: I love it. I, um, I'm i a very frustrated TV personality. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like nothing more than to be offered a uh, sitcom. <laughs> it's true. I feel, I feel a little frustrated in a way because, I mean, opera's wonderful, it's been wonderful for me, but it has certainly not allowed me to exercise performance muscles Uh, that I have and they, and it also keeps you at a distance to a certain extent from your audience. Just by nature of the size of the place or these iconic roles that you're playing that Mm -hmm. uh, you don't get to, you know, have a lot of chuckles when you're singing the final scene of Steve Valkyrie. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm at a, I'm at a, at least you shouldn't. There was the, there was the night that something went wrong with the projections and the Microsoft logo came up on the mountain. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But uh, yeah, so having these opportunities to do you know, things outside the operatic box are, are really very interesting.
1: If you had to do it over again, would the book be any different from the way it is?
2: No, I don't think so. No? No, I, because I didn't, I didn't know how to tell my story without really telling it. I, I just felt that there were enough topics in there that people could identify be beyond the world of opera. And I felt a need to, to tell that. I didn't know how not to be authentic in telling my story. So, you know, I've had some people say, you know, we really didn't want to know all that about you. We really didn't want to know that. Um, some people have said, you know, why didn't you talk more about your colleagues or, you know, um, They'll write their story.
1: <laughs> but you also mentioned to me that as you were doing a book tour around the country, a lot of people came up to you and thanked you for recognizing things that they saw in themselves.
2: That's been, I think, probably one of the, the well, the greatest uh, thing, aspect of, of the book is that people do relate to it. Um, people that are struggling with weight people that are just struggling with alcoholism or you know just young singers trying to trying to become you know big singers grown-up singers and that's that's really um, touching to me especially when there are people that don't even particularly like opera mm. I had a woman the other night say she I was speaking as part of a series of, of lectures in this in Boston so you, your audience members are random they don't necessarily like opera and she came up with to me, uh, wanted me to sign her book. She said, "I don't know anything about opera, but I think I want to know something about it now." And I thought, "Well, that's that's a good thing, you know." Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. I feel very fortunate to be in a place where somebody would want to read it, you know, where yeah. someone would want to know yeah. something about, you know, that that woman that we know in one way, and you know, you get to know me in a whole different way.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Paul. Thank you.
0: Thank you. again for listening to today's episode. We were so happy to have Miss Voigt participate in our programming and even happier to be able to share the interview with all of you. If you enjoyed the episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast in iTunes. We hope that you will also take the time to leave a review, so we can learn more about the kinds of programming you like, as well as what you wish to hear more of. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and I look forward to having you back for Episode 3, in which we will be taking an in-depth look at Wagner's Tannhäuser, leading up to the Met's Live in HD presentation on October 31st, 2015.